In August of 2012, Tony and Sue Bemis received the news no parent wants to hear. Their son, Chief Petty Officer John Keith Bemis, died by suicide. As they grappled to make sense of their loss, things didn't add up. Seven years later, they still have questions about what exactly happened to their son. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crimelines. Like I said last week, this was one of my holiday weeks off, but I wanted to get the story out there. I spoke with Tony and Sue Bemis for this, and they had to wait for a bit. My schedule is a little bit much sometimes, and I hate, 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 hate putting families off when I work with them to get their cases out there because I know how important it is to them. So I definitely wanted to get this one in there before I took a break for the holiday. Next week will not be a regular episode, but I am going to release an episode about the show, a look back at this year, and announcing some changes for next year. To make it worth your time to listen, I will be taking questions that I'll answer in the episode. They can be about the show, about cases I've covered, or about me, if you're interested in that, email any questions to crimelinespodcast at gmail.com by December 27th for me to be able to get them in. I know it's only a couple of days from now, but I need the time to record and edit. Before we get started on this episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode does talk about suicide as well as homophobia. If you struggle with suicidal ideation, I recommend caution listening to this episode. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. If you need someone to speak to about discrimination or bigotry related to being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, please go to glad.org slash resource list for a list of places you can reach out to specific to your situation. Both of these, the Suicide Prevention Hotline number and the link to GLAAD will be in the show notes. Today we are talking about the death of John Keith Bemis, a chief petty officer in the U.S. Navy. His first name was John, but John was a family name shared by many people. It would have been just so confusing if he went by John growing up. So his family called him Keith. And Keith was born in September 1981 in Ohio, where he grew up as the oldest of five kids. His parents describe him as funny and a little mischievous, but a good kid and really outgoing. In high school, he was an athlete. His football team went to state. He also ran track. And when he graduated in 2000, he enlisted in the Navy. And pretty immediately, he had less than two months between high school graduation and reporting to boot camp. Serving his country in the military was something that Keith saw as a path forward after high school. Let's face it, college is expensive. Joining the Navy gave him a chance to serve his country while also giving him a chance to afford a higher education. Once in the Navy, Keith found that he really liked it. 
By 2012, he had 12 years in, and he was just not even a full semester short of getting his degree, which would also help him become an officer. So he ended up with his education and a career through the Navy. Keith was in the service for 10 years when he was promoted to chief petty officer, which tells us his career was going well. According to NavyTimes.com, the average length of time enlisted before making it to CPO is 13 and a half years. That's average. It can go up to 20 years. Keith was moving ahead earlier than sailors who were older than him and also sailors who had been in longer than he was. And it's really not a surprise. Whatever assignment Keith had, he excelled. In February of 2004, he made Sailor of the Month for preventing a fire. When he was a recruiter, he was the top recruiter. And when he was an engineer on the USS Independence, he was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for navigating through the Panama Canal. Fluent in Spanish, he also worked as a translator when needed. And it wasn't just the Navy that Keith put his all into. This is just how he was with everything. If he took something on, he would see it through. He worked on the suicide prevention team on his ship, recognizing when to intervene when someone was struggling. Keith himself was the type to get things off his chest when they bothered him, and he understood the importance of that, the importance of putting it out there, getting your emotions out, getting your thoughts out. So he was ready to be there for people when they needed to do that. And he was also generous. He paid his friend's college tuition so that she could build a better life for her kids. He would also help with Little League fundraisers. He was just ready to jump in and do what needed to be done. And you're thinking right now that I am falling into that true crime trope of canonizing Keith. I've said pretty much everything short of He lit up a room. But the truth is that he really was just a great guy. He worked hard. He tried to help others. And he had a string of awards and successes to back this up. But he wasn't perfect. And one of the not-so-perfect parts of his life involved his on-again, off-again girlfriend. I'm going to go ahead and call her Maria. That is not her name. But... I have a long-standing policy not to name anyone the police or the media haven't named already. Maria and Keith met in 2009, around the same time he moved from Texas to California. They were mostly together when he was stateside, but when he would deploy, she would break up with him and date other people. But Keith really did love her, and they would always get back together. In early 2012, he called home and he told his parents that he was going to ask Maria's father for her hand in marriage. Keith's family is split on how they felt about Maria. Some felt that there was something a little off with maybe her, maybe the relationship, but others really liked her and would have been happy for Keith to marry her. But the whole thing hit a snag because Keith wanted her to sign a prenup. Keith and Maria lived in California, which is a community property state. 
Keith owned a home in Texas that he intended for his parents to eventually retire to. Wanting to protect his parents' future plans just in case, he wanted Maria to agree just essentially to exclude that property from being considered joint marital property. It caused a rift because Maria didn't want to sign it, and Keith was pretty insistent that they had to keep that one thing separate from their marriage. The other thing that was troubling in their relationship at this point is that Maria didn't like when Keith deployed, which we know usually comes with the territory when you marry someone in the service, and very few enjoy the experience. Keith was willing to go back to recruiting in a couple of years, which would have him at home more. But Keith expressed that Maria wanted him to stop deploying pretty much immediately. These are just those things that pop up that need to be discussed and negotiated before a wedding can happen. But sometimes a compromise can't be found. And by the summer of 2012, Keith and Maria's relationship was iffy. So let's fast forward to August 7th, 2012, at a little before nine in the morning. The Lemon Grove substation of the San Diego Sheriff's Office got a call for a welfare check on Keith. A woman he worked with showed up to work at 4.30 in the morning, and Keith wasn't there. Keith isn't someone who would show up late or not show up at all without a phone call. So she waited a bit, and then she tried to call him, but it went straight to voicemail. So she waited a little bit longer to see if he'd call or show up. When he didn't, she decided to call the police for the welfare check. She told dispatch that Keith didn't have any known medical conditions. So an officer went out to Keith's Spring Valley, California condo. He first talked to Keith's neighbor, Eileen, who said she last saw Keith go into his condo around 10 p.m. the night before. At some point between when Keith went into his home and 11 at night, she heard what she thought was something hitting the ground, but she hadn't heard anything else. In this statement, she didn't mention hearing or seeing anyone else come or go from Keith's condo. Keith owned two cars and a motorcycle, and all three were there in the parking lot, so there was no reason to believe that Keith wasn't in his home. The officer knocked on the door. He knocked on the window. He tried to look in, but the blinds were closed. It was dark inside. Eileen let the officer go through her condo to get to her back porch so he could get over to Keith's back porch, and he knocked on the sliding glass door. He still received no answer, and it was locked. He decided at that point to call for backup before he entered the home because Keith did own guns legally. He had, I think, three guns, so this is a normal precaution. When the other officers got there, they also knocked, they announced themselves, and then they used a breaching tool to break in the front door since it was closed and locked. They begin searching the home, calling out for Keith. They get no response, but one of them did find Keith's body 
upstairs in his bedroom. He was at the foot of his bed, lying on his back, and he had his motorcycle helmet on. The officer approached, and it was clear Keith was too far gone at this point for resuscitation attempts. His arms were locked, his hands were bent, both indicating rigor had set in. They called the medical examiner, and she opted to come directly to the scene. From the start, this was treated as a suicide. As we've talked about in other episodes, the danger of this is that crime scene preservation standards can be dropped pretty low on the priority list when investigators don't think they're looking at a homicide. In this case, they let Keith's probably well-meaning master chief clean his kitchen. That's not something we like to see at crime scenes if this was a crime scene. According to the records the family has gotten, there were no interviews conducted aside from the neighbor and the coworker who had called for the welfare check. But there was a visual examination of the scene. Police found two notes in the apartment. One was a thank you card from a neighbor, and the other one was from Keith's girlfriend, Maria, and it said something about how she might not always like him, but she'll always love him. Also at the scene, they did find a 40 caliber bullet. The initial police report said there was a bullet hole in the living room ceiling, which is right beneath the room where Keith was shot. On the floor beneath the hole was a bullet. The ME determined that Keith was lying down on his back when he was shot, so this would indicate that one bullet was fired, it went through the floor and into the room below. That said, when Keith's family went to the condo later, they saw two holes in the ceiling, not one, but a second bullet was not recovered. And really, this is where a lot of the family's questions started when they went out to California and asked to see Keith's place. In the bedroom, there was a cardboard box covering the spot where Keith had died. Tony had it moved, and he saw the blood stain. He was told that it was the imprint from the back of Keith's motorcycle helmet, but Tony thought it looked a lot like the impression of a face not the back of a helmet. This didn't make sense to him, so he took a picture of the bloody spot. But regardless of the family's concerns, they were told that this was a suicide and there was basically no room for discussion. The case was closed and the Bemises took Keith home to Ohio for burial on August 21st, 2012. But this wasn't the end for the family. Like many, who learned their loved one took their own life, they looked back and wondered why. Keith lived on the other side of the country from them, so they weren't there for his day-to-day happenings, but they hadn't seen any signs, and no one they spoke to who saw Keith more regularly had any indication that he was struggling with depression, excessive stress, or suicidal ideation. 
And Keith's naval records showed he was having no mental, psychological, or physical health concerns. But we know people who are suicidal, people who are depressed, they're good at hiding it sometimes. Not everyone is obviously suicidal prior to their attempt. And we know this from the stories of those who survived. One thing we know leading up to when Keith died is he did two things. One, he put a load of laundry in the washer and started it. And two, he put food in his microwave to heat it up. So he went from being in the middle of doing these very routine tasks, getting ready to eat, to, if you believe the medical examiner, killing himself. We do know that suicide is often an impulsive decision. The New England Journal of Medicine has done research on this by talking to people who survived their suicide attempts. Of those who survived, 70% had made the decision within the hour, and 24% of those made the decision less than five minutes before the attempt. That means only 30% of people had made the decision and had a longer than one hour period to think about it. There is a little caveat to this research, though. We have to remember that these are people who attempted suicide. There is a little room for error that those making impulsive attempts are less likely to be successful. In this case, if this was a suicide, Keith went from being prepared to sit down to eat dinner to deciding to complete suicide. So what could have triggered that? The ruling of suicide pointed to two things as the possible triggers. One was work pressure from being a CPO, and the second was linked to his girlfriend, Maria, who, like I said, he was on and off with. But without a note, no one could say for sure. The family's questions, though, only increased when they received Keith's belongings. They received pretty much everything except his laptop. His personal laptop was confiscated from his apartment by the Navy, and the family has not been told why. But they did get all of his furniture, and when Tony looked at some of it, he saw what appeared to be Geisler's written on it. Alarmed, the family decided that they needed to look into this more on their own, sort of do their own investigation. So they requested the full autopsy reports, which includes all of the photographs. Not all families want to see these. Lots of families do not want to see crime scene photos. Some want to see photos as long as they're not seeing their loved one's body there. And Sue, Keith's mom, has not looked at everything closely. But Tony has. And in the pictures from the autopsy and the ones Tony took of Keith's bedroom himself, he sees more of these writings and markings. Now, before I get into it, I need to note that the markings and writing and whatever on Keith's body and at the crime scene are not noted in any official report. They're not in the police report. They're not in the autopsy report. And people who view these photos are split on if they see what Tony sees or not. 
If you listen to the Kayleen Louder Patreon episode I recently released, I mentioned on there that people were split about what they hear on the 911 call, kind of in the background noise, or if they hear anything at all. It's the same thing here. Two people looking at the photographs might see different things. The markings Tony has noted, and that Tony sees and others who agree with him see, are gay slurs written on Keith's body, like his arm, his knee, in his genital region. There are also numbers on the inside of his mouth, I think on his ear and on his tongue. There are scratches on the back of his neck, and what looks like the word araña, which means spider in Spanish, written on the back of his neck. There are also slurs on walls, on his mirror, and even on his ceiling. As for me, I do not look at graphic crime scene photos. I do not look at autopsy photos in general. There have been a few exceptions, and I usually regret them. Occasionally, people will send me things like this unsolicited, and I appreciate Tony and Sue not doing that, not just dropping them in my inbox. They did tell me where I could go see them. I have chosen not to. I will leave it up to you if you want to see it, if you want to see if you see the words on Keith's body. You can find these pictures at cpojohnkeithbemis.com. I will put a link in the show notes. The landing page of that website shows no graphic pictures, but if you click on any of the bars above, you will very likely see them. So caution, warning, make your own decision. So while the autopsy does not mention the slurs, it does mention that there were scratches on Keith's left hand, but they did not determine them significant enough to be considered defensive wounds, and that is also a matter of opinion. Keith's hands were not bagged or tested for gunshot residue. I remember this came up in another case I covered, the DJ Ficky case. Since here I am hearing it again, I asked someone who would know about investigative procedures why the police would not do a GSR test in a suspected suicide case. And he told me that it's determined on a case-by-case basis. The presence of GSR does not rule out a homicide. Someone who is shot at close range, particularly if they put up their hand to block or knock away the gun, will test positive, even though it isn't a suicide. And research shows that GSR tests in known suicide cases do come back negative a significant portion of the time. Not the majority of the time, but enough to be statistically significant. If the person's hand is bloody, or if there was a long gap in time between the gun being fired and the swab being done, it would be even more likely to have a negative GSR test. And in those cases, the police or the medical examiner may decide that there's no real value in doing the test. I looked up what the FBI had to say about this and their recommendation, at least back in the article I was reading, which was a little bit dated, but would have been what was in effect in 2012, is to take the swab, but only analyze it if it would be considered probative which, of course, again, we're going back to it being a case-by-case decision. And in this case, it doesn't appear the swab was done, 
if there was a clear reason not to do it, it's not been stated. The family did get the gun back, so they sent it for testing. The gun did have Keith's DNA on it, but the examiner noted that it looked like it had been wiped down since there was so little of anything else on it. In late May 2014, the family took their concerns to the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office when they felt that they weren't getting anywhere with the investigators in California. A independent team was formed to review the case file, which included these autopsy and crime scene photos. Tony spoke with the head pathologist on the team and pointed out his concerns. One was that he didn't know how it could have been possible for Keith to have fit a 40 caliber gun into his mouth with a full-face motorcycle helmet on. Other concerns were that there was a hair found in Keith's mouth and, of course, the writings that he saw. The pathologist said that the hair could have been from someone leaning over his body, the gun could have fit with the helmet on, and neither he nor his team saw the writing on the body that Tony was pointing out. So they upheld the original ruling of suicide. Tony offered to send them photographs with the areas he saw the writing noted, like kind of circled so they could look at these areas specifically. After sending the marked photos, he did not hear back again after July 2014. Later that same month, the family sent the autopsy report and the photos to a friend. They've asked me to call him Bob. He forwarded it onto a medical examiner that he knew in Ohio. That Emmy said that the case looked like homicide to him. He contacted the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office, asking them to take another look. The family was told that the Emmy received a call from the military, telling him to back down from pursuing this and to destroy any files he had in his possession. Bob, the friend that sent the file to the ME, was then contacted and told that his son, who was in the Navy, would be dishonorably discharged if he didn't stop pushing this. Both the medical examiner and Bob decided that it was not worth the impact on their lives, so they have backed away. Another avenue the family has tried was a former Naval Criminal Investigation Service agent. He is among the people who sees the writing that Tony sees on Keith's body and around the crime scene. He also said he believes the gun was planted because he would have expected it to have fallen on Keith's chest if things happened the way the medical examiner said where it ended up on the floor, would have, in his view, been impossible. Then, in April 2018, with the help of their lawyer, the family had a detective from a local police force look over the case. They turned over six to eight packets of information, pictures, reports, and so on. The detective had the file for about six months. In October, the detective reported that he believes the evidence does point towards suicide. But when the family picked up the documents from him, only two of the envelopes were even opened. He had only looked at maybe a third of the material provided by the family, so they do not feel confident 
in his assessment. So what do the Bemises think happened to their son? They definitely think this was not a suicide. It was a targeted murder. One of the things the police pointed to as far as a sign that no one else was involved is that all the doors and windows were locked and there were no signs of a break-in. But the family knows that Keith had keys missing because back in March, five months before his death, he was on the phone with his parents, just one of those routine, hey, how you doing calls, and he mentioned that he had a set of keys go missing. There is also some discrepancy on whether Maria had her own set of keys to the apartment or not. So there are one or maybe even two sets of keys unaccounted for. I know I changed Keith's girlfriend's name here, and I hope that isn't implying to any of you that I think she's guilty. I want to protect her privacy. She has not been named in the media. She has not been named by the police. And I have seen people with vague suspicions around them be harassed online because their name was brought up in a podcast in a case that people get really invested in. And I definitely do not want to be the person to set that in motion for anybody. And Keith's family does not believe Maria pulled the trigger. For one, she was far too little to have overpowered Keith, even if she wanted to. But they do wonder if it's possible she knows more than she's saying. She hasn't really said much. They have questions. They want to know about that I'll always love you note she left. They want to know when she left it. But the Bemis family and Maria are not currently on speaking terms, so that answer will likely not be coming. Another possibility the family has considered is that Keith was not the target. He shared his condo with a man named Manny who was also in the Navy. It would be a little bit of a stretch to call them roommates since they usually didn't live there at the same time. When one was deployed, the other was home. So in about a year's time of Manny kind of renting from Keith, they spent maybe a week or two overlapping stateside, maybe. When Keith died, Manny was on deployment. So to a casual observer, Keith lived alone and Manny lived alone, even though they shared a home. The two looked vaguely alike, particularly with their military haircuts and their uniforms. There were differences, obviously, like eye color, but maybe not something someone would notice, especially if they didn't know Manny well. Manny did have a girlfriend who ran with a rough crowd. Without an investigation into that side of things, we can't really know more than that. And then the family's, I don't want to say third theory, as though they have like a million theories floating around, but just another concern that they don't feel was explored was Keith's work. Someone from the Navy came and took his personal laptop without saying why. When people tried to get involved to investigate the case, they say they were told by the military to stop. If Keith's death had nothing to do with his work, why would they want people to stop looking into it? Keith didn't talk a lot to his family about his work because the ship he was working on was a prototype and there was only so much he could talk about. But the family did know he was helping a young female soldier 
who was dealing with sexual harassment. And Keith had no issue stirring the pot when it came to standing up to something like that. And that wouldn't exactly make everybody happy. This is what the family has compiled. In this case, I'm not giving my opinion. I'm going to let you, the listeners, weigh the story for yourselves. Unlike most of the cases I cover, this one relies almost entirely on the family for information. There isn't a lot available either in the media or even in the case file. So in that regard, this actually isn't even the type of case I would usually cover here. And I'll be 100% honest, I wasn't sure this case would be a good fit for the show at all. But at the end of my interview with the family, I asked Tony and Sue what they wanted to get out of this. What were they looking for? And what they said is something that I think echoes a lot of families, and not just ones who believe that their loved one's homicide was mislabeled a suicide or an accident, like DJ Ficky or Julia Davis or Keith Bemis but also in cases where they have been ruled a homicide. What they want is a complete investigation. They want their son's death to be looked into thoroughly. Tony and Sue know that they risk being blown off as parents who simply can't accept that their son died by suicide. They know that they're aware, but they have questions that have not been answered. They have had minimal contact with pretty much anyone, including the sheriff's department. So it's not like there's ever been a dialogue where they sat down, they were heard, they could ask questions, blanks were filled in for them. They haven't really had a fair chance to either accept or reject the ruling because they weren't given the chance to have all their questions answered. From what they can tell, Tony and Sue don't think the possibility of this being a homicide was considered for even a moment. And the initial police report supports that. The welfare call was a little before nine in the morning. The police report stating the death was a suicide was written before 2 p.m. That's five hours. But the suicide ruling was made even earlier than that because in the police report, that was written around 2 p.m., it says the medical examiner came to the scene and told the officer it was a suicide. So still at the scene, it was already determined to be a suicide. That's a really short investigation, considering there was no suicide note. And once a conclusion is made, the worry is that confirmation bias will creep in, the investigators will just start seeing things that support the theory and ignore the things that don't. The Jalea Davis case that I've referenced, I covered it a few months back. It's one where the family does not agree with the ruling, but there was a lot more investigation done into that one. The police interviewed people, they contacted the car manufacturer, they did a crash scene analysis, and they even met with the family. The family was still left with questions, but imagine if you had virtually no investigation done And no one was willing to sit down with you and go over your questions. Most of what Tony and Sue have gotten have been short emails back and forth. The family hopes the publicity about Keith's death will also get other investigators to think twice 
when they walk into what they think is an apparent suicide? What if they're wrong? Maybe they'll give their investigation more than a couple hours of their time if they see what happens when they don't do that. If you would like to help Tony and Sue get Keith's case reopened, there is a change.org petition, and I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. 